Turn, if you will, to John chapter 4. <coughs> John chapter 4. We continue this study of the Gospel of John. It's been really interesting for us to move from the East Coast out to the Northwest. <coughs> A lot of changes. Same country, whole different culture, whole different mindset. And one of the things I've noticed is the difference in attitude. You know, when you're on the East Coast, there's kind of a certain sense of people who live there that what's happening there is the most important thing. I mean, that if it's happening in America, it's happening here. And this is the center of power and wealth, education, and... Uh, then I move out here and I find out that the attitude's quite different. Number one, who cares what's happening in New York or Washington? Isn't that true? And number two, I find that a lot of wonderful things are happening that they don't know anything about. And in fact, maybe life is uh, just as authentic and a whole lot more satisfying here than it is in the big hubbub of the great uh, Northeast Corridor. Well, you probably all know all that already, but I just mentioned that because here in our text we have Jesus who has come to be a leader, who's come to be a central figure, who's come to be the king, the Messiah. We have him leaving the place of power, influence, and wealth, and all the controversies and the discussions and everything, and going out toward the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and yet what he's doing there is what's really significant, not all the controversies that he left behind. And what we're talking about this morning is some of what he's doing now in the middle of nowhere in Samaria. Well, let me read it. We're going to have to take a few weeks to get through this section, which goes all the way down to verse 42. We'll read the first 19 verses this morning. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. And when the Lord heard of this, he left Judea. And he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to, come, have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right, when you say you have no husband, the 
fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is, just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. We'll end there. <coughs> I'd like to just point out two things that would like for us to learn from this account, though I'm sure the account is familiar to you, and, and I don't need to tell you the story. We'll, we'll kind of think through it a little bit. Two truths. The first is this. Jesus cares about the nobodies. Jesus cares about the nobodies. Back in chapter 3, we talked about Nicodemus, a man who had it all. Remember, we discussed his wealth and his power, the prestigious family he was from, his reputation in the community, his reputation for integrity, his great learning, his diligence in religion, his wonderful, gracious way that he dealt with Jesus. There's a man who seemed to have it all. Now that's important because those are the things that we tend to labor for all of our lives, and Nicodemus already had them. Still, he was missing God's kingdom. We need to, needed to learn from Nicodemus that you can have it all and still miss God's kingdom. But the truth is that some of us may have had a little trouble identifying with Nicodemus. Most of us are not wealthy or highly educated or rich or powerful or prominent in the community, and some of our reputations might not even be that great. So if you're not like Nicodemus, well, the Lord now wants us to tell about the Samaritan woman. Maybe we're more like her. You see, God cares about the nobodies, not just the Nicodemuses of the world. First of all, we need to just take note of the fact that Jesus deals here with a woman. Now, we're pretty accustomed to the fact that women are equal with men. There's nothing inferior about being female. There's nothing superior about being male. Different, yes, but it's not a superior, inferior thing. We're quite accustomed to that. That was by no means the outlook in Jesus' day. Women were nothing. Women were down there with the children or maybe with the cattle. This woman probably is illiterate. A woman wouldn't have an education. In fact, Jesus should not have even been speaking to this woman. According to the cultural norms of his day, William Barclay reports that the strict rabbis forbade a rabbi to even greet a woman in public. A rabbi might not even speak to his own wife or his own daughter or his own sister in public. In fact, there were even Pharisees who were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they would shut their eyes whenever they came to a woman on the street that they wouldn't even look at her. And consequently, they tended to run into things, became the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. For a rabbi to be seen speaking to a woman in public was the end of his reputation. And here's Jesus, sitting on the side of the well, speaking with this common woman. You see, Jesus cares about those who others consider nobodies you men who speak to women as if they're nobody have nothing in common with the Savior he doesn't do that in fact it's quite remarkable through the Gospels how willing Jesus is to invite the women to be his disciples to follow him 
even last, in last week's text about the resurrection, there was quite a significant thing that we didn't comment on, the time, uh, comment on at the time, but it was still there, and that is that in the resurrection account, who does the Lord choose to be the first to see, the first in the history of the world, and the only time in the world that Jesus would ra be raised, who's the first to see him? And who has the privilege of first announcing that to others? The women. And what was the response of the disciples when they came and told them? They didn't believe him. What would those women know? So here in a passage where John chapter 4, Jesus talks about, he announces that he's the Messiah. Only time he says that in the whole book. He talks about the temple. And he talks about what he's going to do to change worship forever. And who does he announce that to? Who does he tell this to? These wonderful truths that this passage holds for us. To a woman? Jesus cares about those that others consider nobody. A Samaritan woman. Which brings up another point. She's a Samaritan. Now that is even a worse issue even a bigger barrier than the gender issue. Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Actually, the end of that verse, if you have a little footnote, translator's footnote, you'll see that what it literally says is, Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. I don't know if you were ever in the South prior to the Civil Rights Movement. I grew up in the South. Black people would not come into a restaurant where white people ate. They would never be served. They wouldn't be allowed in the door. But as the Civil Rights Movement began, some blacks began to get bolder, and they would come and sit down and expect to be served. And sometimes they wouldn't be served anyway. But on many occasions, if they were served, you would hear of events like this. After they finished dinner, the waiter or waitress would gather up all of the dishes where they had just eaten and would take them away and drop them on the floor, shattering them before their eyes, saying unmistakably, white people don't eat off of dishes that black people ate from. Get the point? That's the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews don't eat from dishes that Samaritans eat from. Let me explain how that came to be. The Assyrians would come in and, as, and they would uh, take their captors, and they would take away many of the prominent people and send them off other places, and they would bring in people from other nations to replace them. And very quickly, the society, they intermarried, and the culture got all changed and the religion got all changed and the political alliances got all changed and the nation as it used to be ceased to exist. It was a big mishmash of all kinds of things. That's what happened to the northern kingdom. Well, the southern kingdom continued for another 136 years, that land of Judah. And finally, it was taken over by the land of Babylon, which was then the world leader. But the Babylons were, Babylonians were quite different in how they dealt with the southern kingdom, the land of Judah, the Jews from there. They took them off as slaves to Babylon, but they allowed them to maintain their identity as Jews, and their identity, their religious identity to some extent. And we read about Daniel and Ezekiel 
that were in Babylon and part of that. Well, after 70 years, when the Medes and Persians had defeated the Babylonians, the Jews were allowed to return back to their homeland, and they did. Those who had persevered in their faith at great cost for 70 years, they came back to rebuild the temple to try to get their life going back home again. And what did they find when they got there? They found the Samaritans. The Samaritans being the people from the northern tribes who are now a mixed up mess of Jews and non-Jews all married together, all now 200 years later, you know, not Jewish people, not practicing biblical religion with all kinds of ideas, a little of this and a little of that, and these people who had come back after 70 years of persevering in their faith were going to have nothing to do with these folks up north, and so they didn't, and the animosity that had existed before just became greater. We'll hear even more about it next week we talk about the temples. That animosity just continued and continued and continued, and now in Jesus' day, here they are 400 years later, and they're not speaking. They have nothing to do with each other. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be unclean, to be idolaters, to be compromisers to be half-breeds, to be illegitimate. They were less than nobody. You wouldn't even eat off a plate that a Samaritan had eaten from. And here's Jesus sitting on the side of the well saying to the Samaritan woman, would you give me a drink? Wow. Jesus cares about the nobodies. Are you surprised by that? You know, we middle-class Americans and think that God especially likes people like us, don't we? I mean, I'm sure he doesn't like those East Indian Canadians that come up and down the guide and pull out in front of me with the things wrapped around their heads. I know God doesn't like them, does he? Or does he? God cares about the nobodies. A woman a Samaritan woman. Oh, that's not all. This woman is a woman of questionable morals. Let me explain. Text says it's the sixth hour. The Jews measure time from six in the morning till six at night, basically sunrise to sunset. Sixth hour is noon. It's the heat of the day in the Middle East. It's a miserable time. Nobody came to the well at noon. You came early in the morning, you came late in the afternoon. Not in the heat of the day. What's this woman doing at the well in the heat of the day? Plus, she's alone. The well is the community center. The well is the one place where everybody has to go, and it's where you talk to your friends. It's where you catch up on the news. It's where there's some give and take. It's, it's like going to shop downtown or, or at the grocery store. It's where you see your friends. It's where you do something, common task together. But this woman is alone at the well in the heat of the day. In fact, why is she even here? She's from the town of Sikar, which is a half a mile or so away, but there's lots of water there. And here she is way out on the outskirts of town. Yes, this is a historic site, but Jacob's well, but she's not a tourist. She lives there. What's she doing out, out of town at this well? Why doesn't she just go downtown in the morning or in the evening with all of her friends? Why not? Well, it's not hard to figure. This is a woman who's been through five husbands and is now living with somebody else yet how many friends do you hang out with that have that kind of reputation that have been through five husbands and are living with somebody else 
She is an outcast, even in Samaria. That's not acceptable practice. She is less than nobody. Does Jesus know who he's talking to here? My goodness, isn't he concerned about his testimony? What kind of man are people going to think he is? What if the church finds out about this? Jesus doesn't care. What he cares about is a woman who is an outcast, a nobody in society, but precious to him. So I have to ask you, would you care? Would you have spoken to this woman if you went to that well? Would you have asked her for a drink? Would you have drunk from her cup if she offered a drink? If not, then you don't think like Jesus because he did. I must tell you, when I came to the chapel, when I considered coming here, thought about all the pros and cons, the most attractive thing about the chapel to me was that everywhere I heard the same thing. No matter who I talked to, I kept hearing the same thing. Wiser Lake Chapel had this reputation that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you've messed up your life, you will always be welcome at the chapel. They'll take anyone out there. Now that's what I heard. And I thought, wow, that's great. Because I know that the Savior's like that. And I know I'm not like that. I like people just like me. I don't like to cross over those barriers. But I thought, maybe if I go out to the chapel while I'm teaching them, they can teach me. Maybe I can be more like the Savior because they've learned something that I haven't learned very well yet. But you know the dangerous thing I see is that the chapel is changing. It's a natural thing when a new pastor comes that you become more like the new pastor. And that's good in a way. I want you to imitate my faith and my love for the Lord and my love for His Word, but... My fear is that you'll change and like some bad things about me before I can change fast enough to be like the good things that I've seen here. And that in the process we will lose this most precious thing that the chapel has had for all of these years. Not just the reputation, but the reality that no matter who you are, you could come here and be welcome. We're becoming a different group. Well, I'm not trying to run anybody away, but we are becoming a different group. More young families, more whole families, maybe more educated, maybe a little more affluent, maybe a little more Dutch. I'm not Dutch. But I challenge you about this. All of us came to the chapel probably for one of two reasons. 
most of us, either because we saw this wonderful love of the Savior that I didn't teach you, Pastor Bruce taught you, and we saw that's the kind of church I want to be part of. And that's not how every church is. Or we came to the chapel because we were a nobody and we didn't really feel very welcome anywhere. And we walked in here and somebody put their arms around us, extended their hand to us and said, we love you here. You're welcome here. Now, whichever way it is, whether you came because that was attractive or because you were desperate for somebody to care, I challenge you to not lose it. Because we won't automatically continue to be that kind of a place. It takes work. People have labored here for decades to be that kind of a, of, of a welcoming, open arms in this community. But the torch has got to be passed to some younger folks. And the time and the effort and the selflessness that's been demonstrated for decades here has got to be demonstrated by some of the rest of us or it will die out and it will be just another church with a linden address doing our thing I challenge you it takes diligence it takes selflessness it takes a humble heart it takes a willingness to reach across the barriers if we would be like the Savior we would be like the chapel has been. People who care about the nobodies. Second truth. Jesus satisfies your thirsty soul. <clears throat> Jesus satisfies your thirsty soul. In our country, there's a big debate going on about welfare reform. And underlying that discussion on both sides, political parties, is the realization that it is really more compassionate to give someone a job with a future than it is to give them a welfare check every month. The same is true in the realm of the soul. What does it mean to really care about people? Well, for so many, it means to accept them as they are, to be non-judgmental, to be there for them, to listen to what they have to say without criticizing or contradicting, and to affirm them in whatever choices they make. But that's as short-sighted as sending welfare checks every month. Jesus doesn't show his compassion by just affirming this woman where she is. And we shouldn't either. If we care about people, we should point them to Jesus. Now, we need to do some of those things, and we'll see that in a minute. But our goal must be to point them to Jesus because Jesus satisfies the thirsty soul. That's his offer and that's his promise to this Samaritan woman. 
Take note of some things about this. Look at how Jesus deals with this woman. He doesn't begin with a sermon. I can see some zealous evangelist standing out there with their pocket full of tracts. Here comes this poor unsuspecting Samaritan woman by down the road and they get up on the side of the well and say, You there! Repent! <laughs> That's just not what Jesus does. She comes and she's drawing water and he sits there and he says, Will you give me a drink? He starts where she is, hot and thirsty, common need, just people just like you. Would you give me a drink? Oh, but when this Jew asked this Samaritan, would you give me a drink, he begins to break down the barriers that have grown for a thousand years. You see, little things matter to show you care. You can't, if you don't really care, you can't act like you care, it'll show right through. I remember when they had the riots down in South Central L.A. after the Rodney King affair. Certain merchants down there were targeted and their businesses were just totally destroyed. And I remember reading some interview with some of the black young people afterwards and they said, why these certain businesses? Why these people? They said, because they were in here to exploit us and make money off of us, but they didn't care a thing about us. They were prejudiced against us. Oh, really? How do you know? You know how they knew? You know what it was about? When these merchants sold them something, when they handed them the change, they didn't hand it to them, they laid it on the counter and pulled back. They wouldn't touch their hand. Wouldn't touch their hand. Little things communicate a lot. Jesus said, I'm hot and thirsty. Would you give me a drink? Well, but Jesus had an agenda here. This is just the starting point, but he has something he wants to say to this woman. He has a purpose here. Look at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's what Jesus is about. He is here to give living water. Now, he is truly hot and thirsty and he does truly want to drink, but he knows something she doesn't know and his goal is that she should have what he has, which is even more important than what he's asking her for. Jeremiah had talked about living water centuries before. He quotes the Lord as saying, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me. It is the Lord, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Well, you see, it's for this that Jesus came. He's the source of life. He's the source of living water. He is the one that the, that the Lord speaks of through Jeremiah. And he's come to offer this woman something that she doesn't have. So he begins the discussing, discussion asking her for something that she has. That's what he's doing here, though. He is seeking to give her living water which can satisfy her thirsty soul. And so he begins to build bridges. He talks, begins to move from these physical needs to this spiritual need. But she doesn't understand. It's confusing at first. And yet he kind of does it. One thing he does, he uses a different word. Whenever Jesus talks about the well, he uses the word spring. Springs. 
water bubbling up. It's fresh. It's new. It's running water. When she uses the word, she uses the word well. Two different words. Jesus persists in it. He keeps using a different word. She says well. He says spring. He says spring. She says well. He says spring again. Now what's he doing? He's pushing. He's pushing. There's more on the, on the table here than just this water. And she kind of doesn't know what to make of it. For her, spring means running water. Living water means running water. But there's no running water here. Where are you going to get running water, she says. You think you're smarter than Jacob? He dug this well. If there was a creek out here, if there was a spring, Jacob wouldn't have dug this well a hundred feet deep. She begins to get a little irritated at him, but Jesus persists. You see, he's got something that she needs. And he raises her interest, and he talks about it in terms of the common, but pushing beyond the common. He picks up the whole notion of the burden of coming day after day. She says, if I had living water, if I had running water, man, if I could turn the tap on, you think I'd be down here day after day? Ah, oh, Jesus has raised the issue here. Which one of us, in doing the same old task that we have to do day after day, which one of us hasn't said, what a life, I get so tired, I just cleaned this yesterday and here it is again. What a meaningless existence. And it wears us down and it causes us to see the futility of life. We wish we had something that would last. Here's Jesus talking as if there's something that would last. She wouldn't have to come day after day and endure the futility of life. But see, Jesus understood God didn't intend life to be futile. He didn't create life and it's to be a futile existence that wears us down and turns us back to dust. And we spend 70 or 80 years of trouble and then we die and we're gone. He didn't create it that way. He created us to live in a garden and to know peace and to know relationship with God. It's sin that's brought this in and Jesus has come to change it. To give living water. Well, Jesus persists. That weariness of life which this woman feels is a hint of her spiritual thirst. And she begins to say, yeah, I would like something like that. And when she does, then Jesus begins to explain, begins to address her where she is, head on. Look at verse 16 to 18. Go call your husband and come back. Now that's the last words that she ever wanted to hear from Jesus. I don't have a husband. That's not good enough. He's not dismissed. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband anyway. Yep, you, told, you spoke the truth about that. Now, she did not want to reveal her reputation to Jesus, I'm sure. But she doesn't back away from it. And we find in a moment that she's going and running and telling people, come see a man who told me everything about me. This must be the Messiah. What I want you to see is Jesus' ingenuous approach here. Why does Jesus raise this issue about her husbands? Well, why would a woman have five husbands? Because there's a thirst in her soul which she's trying to fill by finding the right man. And I tell you, there's something wrong with all those men. Not a one of them 
can uh, fill that thirst. And I'm not going to commit to another one until I find that he can. A thirsty soul, that's what. And you and I have the same thirsty soul. And we seek to have it filled in relationships. Jesus showed her she's living in a relational desert here. Looking for something that somebody can fill in her that will satisfy her heart. But nothing does. St. Augustine put it this way, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Isn't that true? Doesn't your soul long for intimacy? And even though you're married to this wonderful man or this wonderful woman, you have to admit, if you be honest, she doesn't satisfy my soul. I have the most wonderful wife here. I'll tell you, she doesn't satisfy my soul. Your heart aches for something more. But the more you have, still not satisfied. My prayer is that as we talk about this, that you'll identify and you'll realize your soul is thirsty too. It's not just, just this woman running after a bunch of husbands that had a thirsty soul. You and I have thirsty souls. We long for something real in a world that's phony. We long for something that will last in a world that's just for an instant and it's gone. We long for something eternal in a world of time. We long for something meaningful in a world of cheap thrills. We long for something that satisfies our soul. What is this desperate striving after stuff, after things, after wealth, after sex, after a good time? What is this? It's our soul thirsting, crying out, saying, God, I'm thirsty. Man, what I wouldn't give for something that satisfies. that's the cry of your heart I tell you Jesus came to satisfy your thirsty soul but he won't compete with other things Jesus is unwilling to be man number seven in this woman's life he forces her to see that her striving after relationships has not satisfied her soul that he's got something that she doesn't yet have. Nor will he compete with other things and be one of many solutions we have. Only Jesus can satisfy our thirsty souls. I call you to him this morning. And I warn you that we're not talking about heaven on earth. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul, but the truth is, we don't know it completely until we see him in glory. We only taste in this life. Oh, but taste we do. The taste of sins forgiven. The taste of life worth something. The taste of peace in our heart of hearts. The taste of the love of Jesus, the taste of real loving relationships with people, even people different than ourselves. As the psalmist wrote, I say to you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus, satisfy your thirsty soul.
Jesus cares about the nobodies. He satisfies the thirsty soul. I'd like to close with a quotation from the British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. I don't know if you know him. He's a, quite a prominent British journalist who came to know the Savior fairly late in life. He says, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me on the street. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough money to qualify the highest tax brackets. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may participate in trendy diversions. That's pleasure. Might even happen once in a while that something I have said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. No, but listen to what he says. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million and add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, measured against one draft of the living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty irrespective of who or what they are they are nothing compared to one draft of the living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty irrespective of who or what they are. Jesus cares about the nobodies. He came to offer living water that satisfies our thirsty souls. Amen. Father, thank you, Lord, for this good news. For our souls are thirsty. My soul's thirsty, Lord. Lord, does, though we try to present ourselves as somebody hold our reputation before people and keep a good front. We know that inside all of us struggle to think that maybe we're just nobody. But I thank you, Lord, for the confidence today that you love nobodies and that you satisfy thirsty souls. And Lord, I confess I need that. And I know these people need that. And I just pray that each one of us would come to you and trust in you be renewed in our relationship with you, with you, Lord. I pray that your spirit would draw us to know the reality of which we speak this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and let's, as a benediction, sing that little benediction chorus, number 606. That'll be our benediction this morning.
May the grace of Christ our Savior and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with us. May the grace of Christ our Savior God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with us forever.